Good morning, church. It's good to be with y'all. I hope that you were able to enjoy the festivities of this last week, enjoy your Christmas and whatever that means uh, for you and your family. Um, I know last Sunday for Christmas Eve, we had a great time together here, um, and uh, just a great time of worship and of remembrance of, uh, of Jesus and why he came And so uh, it was uh, just a great time of blessing to join together. Um, As we start this morning, uh, I want to ask, did anyone, in light of it being Christmas week, receive something new for Christmas this year? Okay. Now, did anybody receive something used for Christmas this year? Ooh, several of you. Okay, good. That makes me feel better that I wrapped something used for my wife. Um... So, um, you know, I started thinking about this, sorry, dear, um, I started thinking about this, right? Like, we, we, we celebrate Christmas, gifts are, are, are a big element of what that looks like in our culture, and started thinking about why is it that we like new things so much? Um, you know, like, why is it that we like new things? You know, like, you know, Apple puts out a new iPhone, like, every week or something, right? Like, it's... Um, there's always something new coming out, and um, if, you know, you, you are pay attention to what our culture looks like, people always desire those new things, a new car over an old car, whatever the case may be, and there's a lot of reasons why I think we like new stuff, but here's the conclusion I came to. Uh, for many of us, I think we like new things because they're supposed to be better than the old things. We like new things because they're supposed to be better, because maybe they have more features, uh, a new car may have more features than an older car, or whatever the case is. And so newer is supposed to be better. It's equated with that, I think, in many of our minds. And yet, what I want to hit on this morning as we dive into Colossians chapter 3, um, is that when we give our lives to Jesus, our new self, our new identity as a follower of Jesus is way better than the old version. The new self that we have when we give our life to Jesus is way better than the old self. And so we're going to take a look in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And so um, we're going to take a look at some different things. Because what Colossians 3 starts talking about, it starts talking about our identity. Is what it starts talking about. And so when our identity is in the right spot. Um, this calls us to some certain things. And so what I want to ask, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians 3. Um, if not, it will be on the screen. You can follow along there. And uh, we're going to read uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. All right. Uh, if you're able, I'd ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and then remain standing as we pray after we finish the reading, and then you'll be uh, dismissed to sit back down at that time. So uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, God, that you would speak to hearts Lord, give us open hearts, open minds, open ears to hear from you. Um, God, whatever encouragement we need, give us encouragement this morning. Whatever, in whatever ways we need to be challenged in your word, God, challenge us this morning. And God, in whatever ways we need to, to draw closer to you and to learn more about you, ask that you do that this morning. And so God, use your word however you see fit. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you all. And so I want to give you a little backdrop for Colossians 3, all right, so the book of Colossians is four chapters. Chapter 1, Paul basically is like, hey, y'all are awesome, I love you guys. And he basically talks about that for a few verses, and then he goes in and he directly points them and says, keep Jesus at the center of what you do. So he tells them how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how thankful he is, how he thanks God when he prays for them, and then he reminds them of their main focus and purpose, which is Jesus, keep Jesus at the center. And then we get into chapter two, and Paul gives in verse four and verse eight some very specific reasons as to why he writes this chapter. Uh, in verse four, he says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. And then in verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And so in chapter 2, Paul addresses these uh, false teachers um, and some of the false teachings that they are presenting. And, uh, and so he, he, he speaks to that. Throughout the book, Paul uses a lot of language that is comparison, death to life, um, uh, being buried and being raised. He uses a lot of these comparison terms, and we're going to get to some of those here in a minute. And we get to chapter three, and he starts to say, in light of what I just said about how you need to be, uh, you need to not follow in to what these false teachings are, here's the way that somebody who loves me should live their life. And then in chapter four, he then proceeds to give them a list of names. And sometimes those lists of names we're not really sure about. He gives them a list of people that set that example. So he's like, here's how you should live. And then he lists these folks in chapter 4 and is like, these folks are doing it the right way. You guys can do it. I have friends that do it. I've seen how this works. And he gives them some names of some folks. And so that's kind of the structure of the book of Colossians and how it is. And we're actually going to start. You don't have to turn there necessarily. um, But in light of how chapter 3 starts, I'm going to start with chapter 2, verse 20. And so in chapter 2, verse 20, that verse begins with the phrase, if you have died with Christ. 
Okay? And so chapter 3, which is where we're going to spend our time primarily, starts with if you've been raised. But the end of chapter 2 says, if you have died with Christ. And then here's what he's basically telling them. If you've died with him, why do you still live like you did before? Why are you still doing the things that you did before? Why do you still place a great emphasis on the things that identified your life before this? And we open chapter 3 with the contrast. If you've been raised with Christ. And some of you might remember this. This type of language is used in Romans uh, chapter 6 to speak of baptism, right? Um, and it says that if we are raised with Christ, we walk in newness of life. And so the statement, sorry, if you've been raised with Christ is actually a statement of identity. See, when we're baptized, we're telling everyone that we belong to Jesus, that we're choosing to follow him. We become a part of the family of God, a part of the kingdom of light, and uh, when before we were a part of the kingdom of darkness. And so chapter 3 opens, speaking of our new identity, this identity that we have by being raised with Christ, which comes with a newness of life. We are raised with him. We are followers of him. We are identifying in his suffering and in his uh, risen body and saying, I love you and I'm following you. Now, I want to preface this by saying, this passage should probably be about four sermons. Okay, um, it should be. I'm going to do my best in one, unless you want me to go until whatever time your New Year's Eve party starts, in which case we can make that happen. But um, I'm going to try to do as, as best I can with what the time that I have. All right, but this could easily be uh, multiple sermons. And I say that to tell you, uh, it is possible there could be things that you feel like I should have spent more time on that I don't. Okay. Uh, I'm aware of this as we dive in, all right? Um, but let's take a look at verse 1. So this is the statement of identity. Not an identity like your name or your gender or whatever else, but identity as far as who our master is and who we belong to. That's what he's hitting at. Who's your master? Who do you belong to? Who is your Lord, right? And so it's a shift from our identity being in our personal pleasures and our personal desires and in ourself to being in Christ, and so it says, those of you that would call yourselves Christians or followers of Jesus are those that were raised with Christ. So we identify with him in his death, his resurrection, and we submit to him. Um, apologize, my nose just went blank. That's my mind went blank. Uh, so it's good. Anyways, uh, and so what I do want to make a point of is while it talks about us identifying there and... Um, following him and saying we want to be followers of Jesus. What's to follow here in these verses where it describes what that life looks like is not being done in order to earn salvation. It's not being done in order to earn the love of God. If you remember Romans chapter 5, what Romans 5, 8 says, um, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God already loved you. You're not doing these things in order to earn his love. Also, God's the one who did the work. If you pay attention to the way this is worded, Right? It says you've been raised with Christ. Christ already did the work. That's good news for us. So the things that we're going to talk about, about the way that we're called to live our life, isn't in order to gain salvation. Because Jesus, uh, by his work, has given us the opportunity for that without our works. Okay? And so I want to preface this as we dive into these things and what this looks like by saying, this isn't done for those two reasons. This is a response to the love that God has already shown us. 
by sending Jesus to die for us. And so how in the world does this identity change us? If we look back at verse 1, it says to seek the things above. That idea of seeking something, right? That's the things that you're passionate about, your pursuits. And so what he starts off with is this new identity that we have as being raised with Christ, as being followers with Jesus, comes with new pursuits. That's one of the things that marks it. And so Paul speaks about the things that we seek. And we'll see as we get into this in a few minutes, there's a couple of lists of sinful behaviors that we see here, right? Um, as, we, as we dive in a little bit further. And um, what we're going to realize is that what the people were seeking at this time, uh, were they were seeking things for selfish reasons or selfish gain. In some cases, they were seeking uh, with religious customs. Uh, they were seeking things in order to win God's favor. But verse 1 tells us that we're raised with Christ and he's done the work. And so Paul is challenging the Colossians to reorient their lives toward the heavenly reality that's already theirs because of their union with Christ. And so he says to seek the things above. In other words, direct your heart's passions and pursuits towards our eternal dwelling in Christ's presence and his glory. We need to direct our hearts towards things with eternal value and substance. Um, I will say, I think this happens more often than we would like. Um, you know, when we talk about things like this, what we're called to seek, right? We're called to seek heavenly things, to put our affections upon them, and to let our desires be towards them. What he's doing is he's putting that in opposition to the things, uh, the things on earth, in opposition to the things that are above. And so here's what that means. We can't set our affections on both. We can't. As much as there's a certain sinful behavior or whatever that you just really love and have a hard time letting go of, it says we cannot set our affections on those two things at the same time. It does not work, right? You have one of you, 100% of you, and you're called to give all of that in submission to Jesus. Not just part of it, not to leave a little part behind, but all of it. And so we can only pursue one thing. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And so we're called to pursue Jesus. We're called to pursue uh, eternal things. And then we dive in a little further in verses two through four. This new identity that we have is marked by a new focus and a new perspective. So we notice verse one says to seek the things above. Verse two says to set your minds on things above. And so that phrase on things above is still there, but it changes slightly. And so what he says is set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So what's the difference between the two? What distinguishes the two? Earthly things are temporary, right? They exist for a short time, and then they're gone. Even the things that we love the most in this world. They also uh, don't, for the most part, when you think about your uh, eternal, or uh, sorry, your earthly desires and pleasures, they aren't as valuable. Um, they don't have, they're, they're temporary, they're limited, they don't have as much value, but those heavenly things that we're called to focus on, those things are eternal. They have no end. And so when we focus on Jesus, on helping people see their need for Jesus, we introduce them to something that is eternal. See, heavenly things are of unmatched value. And so what is in heaven? Well, let's, let's just, for starters, say verse 1 says Jesus. Right? What's in heaven? Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so being present with Jesus for all of eternity is reason enough, no matter what the rest, whatever else is going on in heaven. Right? But Jesus is there. It says uh, in this passage that uh, our, our salvation is kept there, secure, unable to be taken from us. 
It's described as having streets of gold and other things. So like we can imagine what the Garden of Eden would have been like uh, for Adam and Eve. It was perfection. And so perfection is what awaits us in heaven. A place with no pain, no hurt, no tears will be there. Keeping a focus on the things of heaven allows us to live with hope here and now. Because when we focus on the things that are directly in front of us, we can't see Jesus. We don't see further. We, don't, we only pay attention to the problems that were right there, right? You think about Peter walking on the water. The second the storm comes, he felt the wind. He saw the storm. His faith was shaken. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Think about going to the eye doctor for a moment, all right? Um, I know doctors in general, I know, are everybody's favorite place to go, okay? But think about going to the eye doctor. You know, you, pop, you sit, sit in front of that machine. They got the little thing that pops the air into your eyes. Anybody like that? That feels so weird feeling, okay? So we go to like an eye doctor. And, and so the purpose of going to there is so that they can help you see things more clearly. That would be the end result, hopefully, by the time you would leave that appointment you could see things more clearly. And so they get you in there. They put you down in that chair. They put that little machine in front of your face. And then they ask this series of questions. Which is better, one or two? One or two? They're the same. Okay, how about this one? One or two? Which is better? And all of them are just slightly different. You know, right that? They're just slightly different. And they work through this process basically until the point where they get to where, where everything is clear. But each time they go one or two, one of them is slightly more fuzzy than the other, right? And so you go to the doctor. They have this little test. They, they walk through whatever they need to do. Um, sometimes they may even diagnose you with something at the end, telling you, hey, uh, you, you're nearsighted, you're farsighted, you got some other eye issue going on, whatever it is, right? And yet, in our lives, I think sometimes we have a problem where we live life seeing everything nearsighted that we're able to focus on what's right in front of us clearly, what's earthly, but we miss the eternal. We miss what's further away. We look at things in light of our temporary uh, affliction instead of in light of eternity and what that holds. As we keep reading, we get to verse four. This is one of the coolest, I, I love how this is worded. It gets to verse four. When Christ, who is your life, did y'all catch that? Isn't that a cool phrase? When Christ who is your life. This isn't like a new thing for Paul, right? In Philippians 1, he says to live is Christ. So like he, he has this idea. This is him, right? And so he says right here, Christ who is your life. Christ gave his life in order to be your life. In order to be my life. And we have to start seeing things and focusing on things through a Jesus-shaped lens. One that prioritizes the eternal over the earthly. What is it that your life revolves around? What is that one central focus and aim that everything that you do revolves around? Is it Jesus? If you claim to be a follower of him, then scripture says it should be. Christ, this tells us in this passage, it talks about our minds, right? In Romans 12, 2, it talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says we have the mind of Christ. And so when we set our minds on the things that are above, it allows us to have the mind of Christ. So there's a new identity in Jesus that comes with a new focus and a new perspective. Here's the third thing. This is the one I'll probably hang out on a little bit longer, um, and it's the one you probably want to hear about the least, all right? So here we are, uh, is that uh, a new 
identity in Jesus comes with new conduct. And so I'm not going to dive into each one of the things on these lists, but I am going to do my best to, to cover it and summarize it. Before we even look at these lists, all right, I want to point out something. There's a term that Paul uses four times in the book of Colossians. He uses it once in each chapter, okay? And it's the term, the Greek term that we translate in the term walk. And he uses it once in each chapter. It basically just means how you live or how you conduct yourself. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 10. He uses it in chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 5. And so Paul has it in mind uh, in order to remind the people how they used to walk and how they should walk now. And so there's a comparison, and he is very deliberate throughout this book of intentionally pointing them to these things. This is what your life used to look like. This is what it, needs. This is what it looks like with Jesus. And so this is what we dive into here when we read these things about, about the conduct and what things should look like. And so we get to verse 5, and it opens by saying, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. See, the command to put these things to death, it emphasizes that we are active participants in the sanctification process, but that sanctification does not, uh, is not dependent on our abilities and efforts, but we do have a role. We are to put these things to death. We need to make that effort, right? Jesus, however, is the one that changes us. And so it says, putting the things of the earthly nature to death. Here's what that doesn't mean, y'all. It doesn't mean put it in a closet and save it for a rainy day and go revisit it later. It doesn't mean to go back to it at some future point. It, when it says put it to death, it means it's done. Because once it's put to death, it has no purpose and no value to you. And there's a great uh, illustration that we see here that uh, is a beautiful visual in Proverbs 26, verse 11. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. So dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. It's foolish to return to those things as if they provide us with something that we don't have when we have Jesus. Because we have everything that we need in Jesus. Everything that we need. And so once those things are put to death, they are worthless to you and to me. So then we hit this, this list here. And verse 5 hits on sexual sin as being a huge component of this fleshly nature. And it ends, after naming four different uh, terms for different sexual sins, by using the term greed and saying it's idolatry. See, sexual sin is never fully gratified, and it leaves people greedy for more. And so he's saying that if we can put that sin to death, a sin like that, one that enthralls, that entraps, that consumes and becomes our idol, if we can put that one to death, then we can put the less enticing ones to death as well but we can put those less enticing ones to death as well. And so the things that we're greedy for consume us. They become our idols. And so Paul calls out the church and tells them, put these things to death, because if they don't, there's dangerous consequences. You hear that phrase, and they're talking about God's wrath. Uh, and in certain translations, it talks about uh, in light of disobedience. Guys, before we met Jesus, we were called sons of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience. We were sons of darkness. We were children of the devil before we gave our lives to Jesus. So this is, he doesn't take sin lightly. But because of Jesus, when we choose to make him the Lord of our life, he takes the wrath of the Father on our behalf. And so Paul here, he's very intentional 
It's dangerous to say we follow Jesus but still live enslaved to sin. The two don't coexist. So what Paul is saying is not possible, y'all. It's not possible to claim Jesus, but to be okay with sin running your life. Doing that isn't submitting to the lordship of Jesus because it's not living by the teachings of Jesus. It's not following him. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Notice it's past tense. You used to walk in these things. You used to behave this way. You used to live this way. You used to identify with all these other people that still live this way. But if your identity is being raised with Christ, that's the old you. That's the old you. Not anymore. We're different now. We arrive in verse 8. Paul offers this other list of five. And if you notice the things in this list, he lists anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, uh, which uh, essentially means harsh or abusive talk. They're things that are social sins that demean others. They're things that don't show love to our brothers and sisters. But here's the the clicker. Look at verse 9. It says, do not lie to one another. It's interesting he ends that out by calling out lying, isn't it? John 8, tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And so this list, he's saying if you are actively living this way, you're reflecting the character of Satan, not the character of Jesus. That's a problem. So he says, Put off the old self with its practices. And these practices could be one of two things, right? We've already talked about the sins because he lists them uh, in two places, our sinful practices. Um, and, and in this, that eliminates the thought that you can accept Jesus and still live how you want. Your previous way of life, those sinful things that you used to practice, those are gone. But this part also could be referring to the practices the false teachers were encouraging at the end of chapter 2. So it's possible you could have those in mind as well. And those practices uh, were things like religious rituals and things that you could eat or couldn't eat, couldn't touch, could touch, things like that. And these are things that may not have been inherently wrong, but at this point they didn't really serve a purpose. Like the covenant of grace puts those things aside. And so we're called to rid ourselves of these former behaviors. Now, that said... We understand we still sin. We understand transformation uh, doesn't happen overnight. But the fruit of our lives, I want you to hear this, the fruit of our lives should start to reflect the vine we claim to be connected to. The fruit of our lives should start to reflect the vine that we claim we are connected to. If it doesn't, we need to begin to, to question And so for you and me today, the question here is simply, is there an area that we need to put to death? An area that we need to stop altogether? Is there something that's been an idol for you? So, so far, this new identity comes with new pursuits, with new perspectives, and with new conduct. And then as we get to verse 10, Paul kind of shifts things a little bit. We go from what we need to put off to what we need to put on. And so he says uh, to put on the new self. The new self is the one that's been raised with Christ, the one that seeks to live like Jesus, who was our great example. He reminds us in verse 11 that salvation is available to all and that we can't allow these things to divide us, these things like being uh, Jew or Gentile or slave or free. 
Those things can't divide us when the gospel unites us. And so then we arrive at verse 12, and he starts with the word therefore. So church, what do we ask when we see the word therefore? What's it there for, right? That's the reason, uh, the, the intentional use of that word. What's it there for? And so Paul says, in light of this new identity, in light of the work that Jesus already did, in light of God molding you into his image, these things should be signs or marks of your new identity as well. And so here we are, starting in verse 12. Our new identity comes with a new character. Comes with a new character. And so we're called to put on the character of Jesus. If you read these words, they all describe Jesus. Right? Verse 12 uh, and, and, proceed, and, and other verses here. Uh, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, love, peace. These are all things we see in Jesus that he lived in his life. They're all things that are there. You know where else we see many of these things listed? It's in Galatians chapter 5 when we read about the fruit of the Spirit. Many of these same things are listed in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. But what does, that, what does that tell us? If it's the fruit of the Spirit, it's saying that these are the result of living a Spirit-led, Spirit-filled life. And so when we're raised with Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within us, it molds us. It, it produces this kind of fruit. Now many of these things that are, are, are talked about are in contrast to the things mentioned before. Now, before it talks about selfishness and greed and anger and wrath and all of these things. And these things are in contrast to that. Because those things reflect the character of Satan and these things reflect, reflect the character of our Almighty God. And so the character that looks like this is contrary to our earthly nature. So having compassion on others, whether they deserve it or not. Forgiving others, if for no other reason than the fact that Christ forgave us. These types of things are contrary to our earthly nature. But I also don't want to overlook this element of peace that it talks about. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's hard sometimes. Right? If you're somebody that deals with things like anxiety or other things, peace is hard to come by at times. But it says to let it, not just to let it be present, not to let it be uh, next door, but to rule in your hearts. That's strong language, y'all. That's strong language. And so we're called to let that rule our hearts, not the things that cause fear or unrest or uneasiness. Don't give them a seat at the table of your heart, but let the peace of God make a home there. Because through Jesus, you can have that peace that you won't find anywhere else. So this identity is marked by a new character. And then the last element I want to hit on here uh, is that it's marked by a new motivation, um, our new identity is marked by a new motivation. And so there's a few different things throughout this passage that it touches on. Uh, verse 14 says, Above all else, put on love. Put on love. Right? It says that it, it binds us together. And so Jesus demonstrates his love, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We talked about that already, Right? But Scripture also reminds us that the ultimate act of love is laying down his life for his friends. Jesus did that too. Now, how does Jesus summarize the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you developing a theme here? There's a reason that he speaks so highly about what love is. Because Jesus is the embodiment and the very definition of what love is. And so, one of the reasons that we seek to live a life that looks like Jesus is because we're grateful for the love that he's already shown us. And so our lives are marked by love as a response to what we've already been shown. 
Then we get to verse 17, where it says to do everything in the name of Jesus. And so part of our motivation is simply to honor his name and why we do what we do. So let's think about this for a moment. If you had a big project at work, okay, and it got like rave reviews, your bosses were talking about it, it made a significant impact, would you want your name attached to it? I'd imagine most of us probably would. Right? Makes you look good for your boss, shows them that you're competent in what you're doing. Like, I'd imagine that'd be a good thing. Now, if you turn in a project that's trash, <laughs> that looks like, you know, you're a grown-up and it looks like something that a second grader turned in, you're probably going to not want to claim that, right? Like, you don't want your name attached to that. And so I find this is, this is really interesting, right? Because, like, for the Christian, for the one who proclaims Jesus, his name is attached to our lives and how we live. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We're his spokespeople. His name is attached to what we do. Have any of you guys ever watched, like, an awards ceremony? Like, on purpose, not just, like, accidentally flipped through. Yeah, so... Um, award ceremonies, I try to avoid almost at all costs, just to be honest with you, um, for a lot of reasons. And yet, it's interesting, right? Can you imagine someone going up to receive an award for a film that was just absolutely disgusting, that was dishonoring to God, and yet the first words out of their mouth, I'd like to thank God. Really? You want to attach his name to that? I think so. Y'all, our actions, our words, the way that we live our lives, if we're claiming Jesus, his name is attached to that. We got to be careful, right? Like, that would be the equivalent of you or I indulging in sin but thanking God for it. If the name Jesus is attached to you, remember, he's already signed the covenant for you by his blood. And that should motivate us to seek to live lives that reflect Jesus. Galatians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, both tell us that our aim is to please God and not to please man. And the last part of this, before we close, is back in verse 4. And it speaks of Christ's return. That should be a motivating factor for us in the way that we live our lives, is Christ's return. The second coming of Jesus should motivate us to live with a sense of urgency in our lives. And so the love of Jesus, our desire to love him by obedience, and the hope of his return should motivate us to live like him. So, God's word for us today reminds us that with a new identity comes new pursuits, new focus, new conduct, new character, and new motivation. And that seems daunting. I guarantee it. Some of y'all are like, that's way too much. That's too hard. There's no possible way that I can do those things. And you would be right. There's no possible way that you can do those things or that I can do those things. So how in the world can I, make, can I change like that? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it so that I could tell you, right? If we go back to verse 10, it says, Our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. God is the one transforming you into his image. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And so molding us into uh, into the likeness of his son who is God himself. He is changing us. We aren't on our own. The almighty, all-powerful God that we serve is the one that's at work in us 
to make us like him, to give us the power, to give us the strength to be able to fight against temptation in order uh, to make decisions that reflect our love for him. We're not on our own in this, y'all. We're not on our own. As a matter of fact, if we go back into verse, I believe it's verse 16 in this passage, it speaks about being in community with one another, does it not? And singing with one another and studying the word together. Like we need to be in community. We're not on our own. It speaks of being renewed in knowledge and of the word of Christ dwelling in us. And so as God reveals his word to us, the only response is to want to imitate the Father. It's like a, like a child imitates his dad. We seek to imitate God. And so this transformation, y'all, it's a process. We're going to keep messing up. We're going to keep messing up. But God's going to keep working. Just because we mess up doesn't mean he ever stopped. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep transforming us. He's going to keep making us more and more like him each and every moment of every day. But in light of the word today, I want to leave you with two promises. The first is this that God is faithful to complete that work that he started. So that work of transformation, of sanctification that he's doing in you and in me, he is faithful to complete it. Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to be brought to completion. And the second thing is that God's going to make everything new someday. Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm making all things new. God's going to complete that process of sanctification one day when we see him face to face. And so here's our response today. For some of you that have never made the decision to root your identity in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, you've never said, I want to give my life to follow Jesus, I pray today is that day for you. I'd ask that you come and talk to me during this last song, uh, should you choose, uh, or talk to Pastor Paul, still hanging out down here with me, right? But for many of us that claim the name of Jesus, allow Jesus to search your heart for the next few minutes. Allow him to search your heart to see if there's any remnants of the old self that need to be put to death today. Because he is faithful. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We love you. We acknowledge that we can only do things when we're connected to you, Lord. John 15 says, apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, as we seek to live lives that model what you've shown us. We seek to live lives that honor you in every way, shape, and form. God, remind us we can't do that apart from you. So Lord, give us a new desire to spend time with you, to love you. God, search our hearts for things that we need to change. God, encourage us where needed. But God, we know that we can't have our feet straddling the line of chasing and seeking after earthly pleasures and earthly things and chasing and seeking after heavenly things whenever we're claiming you as our Lord and our Savior. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word today. It's in your name I pray. Amen.